All right, good morning, everybody. I just put some glasses on so I can see what I'm doing. Getting old. <laughs> All right, so uh, this morning I'll be reading from uh, Micah chapter 5, um, the entire chapter, so verse 1 to 15. In the Bible that's just got Holy Bible on the front, nothing else, it's um, page 658. And in the other Bible, it's got a little bit more of the boxes and everything else. Um, that's page 933. So Micah chapter 5, verse 1 to 15. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like the Jew from the Lord, like the showers like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord... I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you and you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that you have not obeyed me. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. Some of you are too young to remember the Bonnie Tyler song from the 1980s movie Footloose. The song's bridge is remarkably prophetic about the hero we long for. Up where the mountains meet the heavens above, out where the lightning splits the sea, I could swear there is someone somewhere watching me. Through the, the, through the wind and the chill and the rain and the storm and the flood, I can feel his approach like fire in my blood. We need a hero. We humans are in a predicament. We're fallen and in turmoil. Just look around at what's happening in the news. Each day you see it. We need a hero to rescue us. 
Bonnie Tyler's song is, here's the segue, Bonnie Tyler's song is a lot like the situation we find in the book of Micah. Micah's listeners are in need of a hero. And just like Bonnie, they're looking for someone out of the ordinary. But they're looking in all the wrong places, just like Bonnie. Today's passage points to a superhero who will do what humanity cannot do. A hero who will lead his people to a universal victory. God will make himself known as hero and he'll remove everything that obscures that message. The passage opens with a grim situation. Verse 1. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. If your version has something a bit more gory, that's okay. Come talk to me about it later. In the time of Micah, the situation was dire in the so-called Holy Land. Israel and Judah were under attack The capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, had already gone into invasion mode where enemies had come in and taken the people away into exile. And Jerusalem was in and out of siege as wave after wave of Assyrians came. As we read in the second book of Kings, elsewhere in the Bible, various humiliations were dealt out to those people, to successive kings of Israel and Judah. It was pretty embarrassing to be among God's people. God's chosen people were suffering and in difficulty. That's why the phrase strike on the cheek with a rod is used in verse 1. Then as now getting slapped in the face was an embarrassing insult. A taunt that predicts the humiliation of here a whole nation. And that was going to happen to the ruler. Was that the hero that they were hoping for? If verse 1 describes a humiliated leader, verse 2 shows an even more unusual ruler. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. A ruler from Bethlehem? Bethlehem was a small town, a backwater, really. A real surprise to have a ruler come from there, as indeed it was a surprise in the days of Samuel, who expressed surprise when God told him to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, King David. David was an unexpected ruler who turned out to be great. But a second one from Bethlehem? What are the odds? Now, yes, we know something about Bethlehem that Micah's original hearers didn't know. I'll get to that in a sec, but try to imagine this from the perspective of the original hearers. A ruler will come from the small clan of Ephrathah, the little town of Bethlehem, And although he hasn't come yet, he's already steeped in history, a man of antiquity from ancient times. This is an unusual king. And even more unusual when we consider verses 3 and 4. 
Israel will be abandoned until the time she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. This king is not going to be one of the usual kings that have failed Israel so many times. No, he's going to rescue God's people and not just Israel. Verse 3 there, it says, The rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. And verse 4, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Not just the national borders, but much more significant than that. This is more than a national king. This is an international king. And what's more, where does his strength come from? Does his strength come from his military prowess, from the number of horses or chariots he owns? No, it's not how big his army is. Verse 4, his strength is of the Lord, his majesty of the very name of God. Micah is predicting a king not just for that day, not just for today, but a king for all time. You may have already guessed who he's predicting, but Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament Micah's prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God. Let's take a look back over the prophecy from verse 2. Born in Bethlehem? Yes, Jesus was born there. One who will be ruler over Israel? Jesus said so himself when he told Pontius Pilate, You are right in saying that I am a king. Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times? Yes, Jesus himself tells us he was around even at the time Abraham was around. Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. And John chapter 1 says that Jesus was always with God because Jesus is God. He will shepherd his flock? Yes, Jesus himself tells us he is the good shepherd. He will guide us and lead us safely through the hard times and his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Multiple times in the Bible we're told that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the unusual king that Micah predicted here, that Micah only hinted at. But you might recall, didn't I say, God is our hero? Well, that's still true because even more unusual is the unique status of Jesus, not just a great man, not just a perfect man, but God, actually God, in human flesh. God is the hero and that will be demonstrated when Jesus, that is God the Son, leads people out of Israel, out of exile and into a kingdom that never ends. Oh, there's so much I I want to tell you about Jesus that Micah only hinted at. The best Micah can say is that this king will be our peace. 
verse 5. He will be our peace. We saw what Jesus was capable of when he walked the earth. Jesus calmed storms. Jesus healed the sick. Brought people back from the dead. Jesus put to shame those earthly rulers who sought their own fame and glory. In fact, when verse 1 talks here, talks about Israel's ruler being struck on the cheek with a rod, even that was fulfilled in Jesus. He was struck a cruel, humiliating blow, nailed to a cross, while those around him mocked him and taunted him. He looked defeated, But the cruel death he died is what paved the way for peace for you and me. What paved the way for his people to be brought out of exile and back into his family, into his kingdom. Rescued not just from political defeat, but rescued from death itself. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is God the hero of Micah, the hero of the Bible. I could stop there, but actually we've got ten verses to go. Does does anyone know the song, We Are the Champions? Yeah, it's a pretty easy chorus. Uh, If you've ever been on a bus after a swimming carnival or a footy grand final, there's a chance you'll hear someone singing it. Well, I hope you've had the opportunity to. We are the champions. We are the champions. Are the champions, no time for losers, because we are the champions of the world. It's an expression of utter confidence, of utter victory, of utter pride. And though it's an old song, it's not old enough to have been sung in Micah's day, in the 8th century before Christ. But here from verses 5 to 6, we have the next best thing. A victory song used to G up the troops to presume success and thus gain confidence. Have a look. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. This is a song of conquest, but Micah recounts it in order to critique it. It seems the people are chanting a war song, relying on nationalistic pride to pull them up, to confirm that they'll always win the battle because God's on their side. When faced with a foe, the Israelites will have God on their side and a deep pool of leaders to guide them all to victory and bring them safely through the battle. But in verses 7 to 8, Micah sets them straight. The remnant of Jacob. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many people. Like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. 
this victory that is coming won't be the normal nationalistic victory in battle because the people will be decimated. The people will go into exile and there'll be only a remnant left. In verse 7, a remnant, that is a small remainder, a small little group left and even then spread out among many people. Again in verse 8, a remnant of Jacob spread out among the nations. This is not a we are the champions refrain at all. It's more like a people are going to be humiliated by their earthly oppressors, resorting to hiding in back rooms and in caves, in foreign sweatshops, in jails, hoping that one day it'll be safe to come out. Uh, There may be a victory coming, but they won't be able to rely on the pride of their military or their political alliances. The one thing they will rely on is God. And the other thing about this coming victory is that it is only to be the work of God, not of the people. The key word here, we might overlook it, is due. Verse 7, due from the Lord. Well, think about it. Due appears without explanation. Well, without explanation in that day. But we agree it didn't come through the hard work of the people. It didn't come through their planning. There wasn't an irrigation system. You didn't have to draw dew from a well or carry it in a bucket. Dew was solely the work of God. It was a godsend. And there's a lot of times in the Old Testament where dew is synonymous with godsend. For example, how did the people describe the manna that came from heaven in the days of the Exodus? It settled like dew on the ground. It was a godsend, totally not the work of the people. Totally the blessing of God and God alone. And so will this recovery be for the people exiled, for the remnant of Jacob To put it in the modern vernacular, God only knows how any one of his people will survive this exile. But God knows and has plans. That's because God is the hero of this prophecy. God is the hero of the entire Bible. God is the hero. God can rescue his people even after they've been invaded. God can rescue his people even if they can't call themselves a nation anymore. God can rescue his people even after the battle is clearly over. Even after his people have admitted defeat, God will not be defeated because God has the long game in mind. Do you? This message is for us too. When you feel humiliated and oppressed and embarrassed, doesn't it feel like you've lost that battle? When your church closes down, doesn't that feel like you've lost the battle? When we hear of church members who no longer want to join us and instead go have coffee rather than be with us, we might feel abandoned. 
when religious rivals set up on our doorstep preaching a much more attractive gospel and bringing people over to them, we might feel invaded. When your faith is dismissed as powerless or annoying, as irrelevant and unnecessary by people you thought were your friends, you might feel like the battle is over. Ever since Adam and Eve, men and women have been subject to abandonment, isolation, separation and embarrassment for bearing the name of God. They're in exile. But take heart, God holds the key to victory. And I can't say that it's going to look like success in this world. It's not going to look like an achievement of man. Because this victory is much more significant. This victory that God is planning is a victory over death itself. Not over whether you'll have a nice house and a nice job, but victory over death. That's a bigger victory than anything we could see from our vantage point. We need a hero, but not just for now, for forever. It's only because of the due, the unexpected gift of God that God's people can turn from humiliated cave dwellers into mighty lions, did you see in verse 8? Turning into mighty lions, it's only because of God's rescue that we can live, that we can outlive, that we can outlast our enemies and our adversities, as verse 9 says. It's only because of God the hero that all our foes will be destroyed, not in the short term, but in the long term, including the real foe, death itself. God is the hero. Oh, I could stop there, but still five more verses. We need a hero, but this hero Micah tells us about won't be any mere man. The hero is God, and when this hero comes, God will remove any doubt about that by removing any of the obstacles that blocks us from seeing the true message. Now, you don't have to be a parent to understand this illustration, but parents, gee, it can be a tough time getting your kids to pay attention to you. Bella just gave me a look. (coughs) Right now, in kids' church, there's chaos, and full credit to our teachers who can get even a minute to impart some truth about Jesus before it's back to colouring and crafting and playing. You know how it goes. Little Peter, listen to me. Ah, No, no, put the pen down, look at me. Put the car down, look at me. Little Sally, uh, no, I'm talking, don't turn away. No, turn the TV off, I've got something to say. Or you switch off the TV itself, or you hold the ball long enough so that the person will look up to get the message... It's a simple case, isn't it, of having to remove the distractions. Teachers, you've got the same issue, I know. And so too here from verse 10 to 15, Micah's hearers had lost sight of the message. They'd lost sight of the truth. They'd lost sight of their hero, God. They'd surrounded themselves with stuff 
that obscured their view of God. And from verse 10, we see what God's going to do so that they start listening. In that day, in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land. I will tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You'll no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I'll uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I'll take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Against the nations that have not obeyed me? This prophecy includes Israel, groups Israel in with the nations that have not obeyed me. No one, it seems, has got the message right because they've taken their eyes off the true hero, God. How are they opposing God? They're putting their faith in other things, aren't they? Instead of God. And so God is going to take away their false gods. God is going to take away their distractions. Verse 10, he'll take away their horses and chariots. It's not the size or reach of their army that counts. Verse 11, he'll destroy their cities and fortresses. It's not strength in numbers that's the key. It's strength in God. Verse 12, he'll remove their fortune tellers and sorcerers. Verse 13 sums it up. He'll remove everything that they worship that is not of God. Everything that they worship that they themselves have set up. Put simply, Micah's message is based on the first two of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's not just about making Asherah poles or bowing down to statues. No other gods before me. This includes, as we see here, setting up anything that blocks your view of God. Taking your focus off God. In the history of that time, we read the people went to Egypt looking for extra horses and chariots so they could win, but that came to nothing. We read of kings looking to other kings to help them against their enemy. But what about when the enemy is death? And we read of kings sacrificing their own children in the fire to get some false god to grant them victory. But God will have none of that because God is the hero and he deserves to be recognised as such. God will not have anyone or anything else take the glory. So if anyone puts their trust in something other than God, then they risk having that block their view of God. We might scoff at the foolishness of Micah's heroes, Asherah poles, sorcerers. No, but isn't that the same today? Don't we chase security like it's the way to guarantee our future and find that we lose sight of God the hero? God may have saved you and you may believe that. But there are three areas I think our church is at risk of falling into the same trap that Micah warned about. The first Micah trap is amusement. The arrival of the smartphone, the arrival of the internet, and before it, the TV, and before it, I'm not really sure, <laughs> means that we're constantly chasing amusement, aren't we? 
and that if we're not being entertained, we start to feel a bit insecure. We will win the battle as long as we're connected to the world. No wonder we find it really hard to sit and pray nowadays. No wonder you find it hard to sit in church and give up time being unconnected, unentertained perhaps. That's not what church is about. No wonder we find it hard to listen to others and actually take the time to listen. If we find our security in amusement and short-term gain, then we're taking our eyes off God. If you're not sure whether this is your problem, let me ask you, when was the last time you chose to put down the phone and pray instead? When you last had two hours free in an evening, did you pick up Netflix or did you try to do some Bible reading and prayer? I'm not saying every time, but if the internet and Netflix is winning over prayer and Bible reading 100 to nil, then I put it to you that potentially this is a problem for you, a problem with amusement. The second mica trap is our career, our job. We've developed personal debt to the extent that we have to chase the best paying job in order to feel secure. If we're not earning, we feel insecure. But it's not just because of debt. I say it's because of identity. We've put our trust in that rather than in God. We want the status of being our own hero, of being the doer, the achiever, rather than our identity as children of God. Retirees, therefore, have to battle with insecurity because they're no longer the doer, the achiever. Our working parents find it hard to make time for the things of God because they're juggling two jobs. No wonder our unemployed and our nursing mothers find it so hard to have identity in our society. They're being looked down on because... They don't have that career. Ultimately, we'd rather be the hero. But a right theology strips us of this need because we see that actually God is the one who's done all the work and our identity is as God's children, not as achievers, as doers. If you're not sure whether this is your problem, let me ask you, do you plan your Christian worship in the same way as you plan your work hours. If you can tell me your work hours for the next two weeks, but you can't really tell me for sure if you'll get to church or get time in the Bible, can't really be sure if you'll get time for your family, time for prayer, then I'd argue that you may have a problem about where your security lies. And the third micro trap, the third way in which we set up things that get in the way of God as the hero, is comfort. We love comfort. I do. We're living in the comfort capital, I reckon. Go for a bike ride, then for a swim, then have a nice coffee. There's umpteen ways to find comfort in this town. And if we're not comfortable, we're probably chasing it. Those of you planning your holiday or renovation, don't worry. I'm not telling you that you have to stop. But I am going to ask you... Are you just as deliberate about your Christian service, about your relationship with God, acknowledging him as the real source of your eternal comfort, 
about giving, giving glory to him and walking in the spirit. If you can describe your renovation and holiday plans for the next year, can you also describe your plans to increase in holiness, to work in worship of God, to have spiritual retreat, to identify where you need to repent, to identify how you plan to relate to God, your hero, then I'd argue that perhaps you have a problem with where your security lies. And again, it might be chasing your own comfort. So I want to lay out those three traps for you. Amusement, career, comfort. If they're a problem for you, heed the warning of Micah. For his original hearers, God is going to save them from exile. Yes, but in the process, he's going to strip away everything that got in the way of observing him as hero. And for us, God has saved us when we put our trust in Jesus, our hero, through that unusual king, born from a small town and struck a blow for us. God has saved us through that unconventional victory bringing us back from defeat, back from isolation, back from separation, back from exile when Jesus died in our place. God is the hero. He's rescued us. To be, as the Bible puts it, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people belonging to God. God deserves unrivaled obedience. Let's work today on how we can focus on God, how we can serve and love him, and how we can remove any obstacles to that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we were saved to be your people. Help us to live as your people. Help me and help my friends today to put aside the things that take our focus off you to do the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do, but not to let those works be our badge of honour. Rather, Lord, you are our hero. And we thank you for the work that you have done to give us identity, to give us peace. Peace that doesn't just last for today, but peace that lasts to the end of the earth, to the end of forever. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.